Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arcanal. Hey, what's up, Polly and everyone? Thanks for joining. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and some hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of August 28th, 2023. So Lee, obviously our favorite time of the month is when we get another D for report. This one is... The HTML smuggling leads domain-wide ransomware. Um, these are always really, really good reports. We always talk about how lengthy they are. Um, they're worth checking out. This one, um, the ransomware is associated with the Nokoyawa ransomware. Using, I mean, if you look through this, they use a lot of the really common techniques uh, that you see. The one thing that was interesting, though, is the phishing campaign that led to the initial compromise was why they call it HTML smuggling was actually like an HTML attachment, but within the HTML code uh, was a base 64 encoded payload that when you open the HTML page into your browser, it'll basically decode the base 64 and then gives you an ISO uh, or a zip file with an ISO image with an LNK and other types of things associated with that. Uh, so kind of like, if you think about old phishing campaigns we've seen in the past year or so, some of the techniques they use, it kind of just added to that, uh, which I always think is interesting when you see how the techniques don't completely change. They just kind of get adjusted or it get a little more complex as far as the chain of events. Uh, but that also is really good for uh, us as threat hunters because, you know, even though they changed one element of that attack chain, there's elements in there that are consistent with what we've been hunting for previously. So that really helps with the identification. And one of the things, you know, as we talked about the, these reports being really verbose and a lot of really good content, uh, I always like to start, and this is kind of my advice um, when approaching these, with the timeline. And this one's kind of towards the bottom, but the timeline basically shows from the day-to-day -day activity, kind of, so you can kind of get a feel for how fast this adversary people move, which I think is good insight because it lets you know how much of this is a kind of prescribed process that they're following um, versus if they run into some difficulties or, you know, kind of like pull audibles on the fly. But it also has a lot of the technical detail to let you know, like, hey, some things you might recognize as, oh, yeah, I know what they're doing here uh, because they have a lot of the technical command lines pulled out. They kind of have um, the high-level grouping of, you know, these are the discovery commands they're using. These are how Cobalt Strike was spawned. Um, and so it's a great way to kind of you know, wrap your head around everything that occurred. And then when you want to dig in even deeper, if there's more details around some of the stuff you see, then you can kind of pivot to other points um, within the report. One thing that I thought was really interesting, and we've talked about this in the past few podcasts to come up with the use of CHCP, which kind of determines the coding page. And, you know, we talked about this previously where the code page was being set for command prompt or PowerShell so that, you know, you're basically defining the language as being leveraged within those tools. Uh, in this case, they weren't defining a language. They were basically checking the language. 
which I thought was interesting insight because I feel like if you're checking the language, it, you're more likely hands-on keyboard. So, so that was something that I thought was really interesting um, from the use of that and kind of like you kind of understanding, well, why would someone do this this way versus that way? I like always, and I always like to uh, differentiate between hands-on keyboard um, interaction versus pre-scripted. Uh, because I think when you see hands-on keyboard behavior, those are easier to build hunts around because you're really truly attacking how the adversary will work if they get in your environment. Um, a lot of times when you see like pre-scripted things or tools, um, sometimes IOCs really help a lot with those um, more so than the behavior behind the person. And uh, something that was kind of called out uh, by one of our other analysts, which I thought was a, a good call out was, you know, they use Xcopy a lot, or I would say a lot, but they use it enough, um, which is just a tool built into Windows that lets you copy things over and use different flags for how you copy. But they were using it to basically copy um, legitimate lull bins, essentially, uh, lay the land binaries to another location um, under a different name to kind of try to hide some of their, their tradecraft or their execution so it doesn't look like the typical behaviors you would see. Uh, depending on how people are identifying those. So like, for instance, they did it with Red VLL. So if you have certain um, detections or hunts or behaviors you're looking for around one Red VLL and they change the name entirely, but they're using some of the same um, argument structure um, for execution, that's one way they're kind of getting around some of that, um, which was an interesting call out. But they have, you know, the traditional uh, things you see with a lot of these, I would, I would say lower level, um, compromises. They use a lot of default cobalt strike stuff, so all the beacons or pipes look the same. So Sysmon is a great place to see pipe creations for that. Uh, they use AD Find to help enumerate a lot of the things within the environment. Uh, they use, like I said, Run DLL, even though it's renamed, um, to do some execution-based stuff on some of the payloads. And then PS Exec and WMI uh, to do some remote execution. I think that's how they also... Uh, executed the ransomware uh, across the environment um, utilizing those with remote connections so yeah so it's a really good write-up it's worth checking out uh, and it's it's a, a good place to start especially if you're not used to what a full attack looks like these are always great reports for that so yeah lee i know you like these reports but what are your thoughts absolutely so normally i'll say normally because i'm looking at it right now these sounds are great because normally it shows the cadence of the attack it shows that the threat actors don't, they're going to take multiple steps. And like you said, they're, they, they're not just landing in your environment and doing everything at once. Normally it takes a couple days or so, because as an adversary, you got to get into the environment. You got to learn that environment as quickly as you can to see what you, what you can leverage. And then normally you go on to the next day and then you start attacking and getting, you know, like you said, hands on keyboard. Ironically, this one has one day. So it shows the speed mm -hmm. that, I mean, the adversaries, we, we try to adapt, but then the adversaries adapt as well. It's that um, spy versus spy, that cat versus mouse, that never ending, just if someone improves, the other one's going to improve as well. Um, and it shows the speed that ransomware uh, groups have really, really honed their attacks, right? Um, going back to, I believe it was the Mandian, was the year in review it may have not have been maybe it might have been crowdstrike or some other big name but they mentioned that you know ransomware attacks were down to less than four days and this this shows why i believe 
it just shows their tactics. It shows the um, the things that we see a lot in these reports because a lot of the reports that they cover are ransomware based. Uh, we see like the same things over and over. And I guess as a threat hunter, it's not frustrating, but to see those behaviors constantly, they're being reported on constantly. You would think that's one thing that um, the community might pick up on. Now, I get it. Not all organizations are the same. Not all organizations have a team of cybersecurity analysts looking through all this stuff. Um, but it's just the same thing over and over. Not, it's not always the same, but a lot of the same commands, especially with discovery. Um, it's, I guess, shocking. Um, one other or two other things I thought was interesting is I think this might be the first report. I could be wrong. Um, I'm a pretty religious reader of these, but I still could be wrong. Um, but they mentioned that they saw two threat actors um, in the environment. So it showed, it talked about, you know, TA-551 being the distributor or, and as you read the um, read the report further, you'll find out that they were responsible for the phishing campaign. And then once they got access, they handed it over um, to the Noka Yawa ransomware affiliate. So it was, it's interesting to see that, that they were able to gather enough information and look at the techniques, tactics, and procedures and behaviors um, to say, you know what, this wasn't just one person or one group. Um, and then looking at the um, initial access when it talks about the ISO file being executed, they actually mentioned a log source that I don't think I was aware of. I think I may have stumbled across it before, but never really thought much of it. But it is the Microsoft Windows VHD MP operational um, log source. So I had looked that up um, and come to find out this is a log source that it really focuses on virtual hard disks um, and you know their operations. So if one's mounted, an event occurs. When one's unmounted, an event occurs. Um, and then there's you know other information or other events that capture that as well. But something like that, um, organization, uh, and I didn't do any research on it yet, but I'm curious, and I can assume that ISOs aren't, or ISOs mounting on a day-to-day -day basis might not be normal. So okay. like, but once again, I could be completely wrong. Um, but in my mind, I don't know how many times people are mounting virtual hard drives to machines. So if you were to audit this um, or start collecting that logging, it might not be a huge heavy lift. Um, and it might not take a lot of, a lot of space up in your SIM. Um, so that might be a log source that you want to be aware of and maybe take a look into to see what exists in your environment. Turn it on for like a week or something. Um, see, uh, you know, see what information you gather, if any. Uh, and then, you know, plan accordingly. So if that is something that you see one event in the last 90 days, then maybe that is something that you could, your organization could start to audit and collect information because the first initial access was, um, or the, the ISO being uh, mounted was the initial access. So if you could, if you could detect, or if you could hunt for something that early in the attack, you might be able to stop something from happening right away. Um, 
but those are just my thoughts. Um, for, yeah, for, no, I think I, I like the the uh, the audit log you mentioned, and something else that you know is always good, especially if you're not sure if something's going to be common in an environment, is look at all the other data that's included in the log, other than what the purpose of the log is. You know, for instance, like if it records the path of where the things are being mounted from. That might be a really good way to differentiate between abnormal and normal if you have that kind of activity happening. Um, and, you know, any other types of additional data that kind of helps you say, well, okay, this one is normal and look at all the data around it in the context in the log versus if we had an abnormal one, what would be different? Uh, don't just focus on single points of data within the, within the logs. So very cool. Absolutely. Because I in the report, it calls out the app data level temp directory, which we know is always legitimate <laughs> yeah good report as always yep so yeah that's all i got there so uh, what do you uh bring to the table so i found an interesting um report it was called the leak password report of 2023 um by spec what spec off software yep this was really insightful so i know normally we like to stick around uh, or I, I normally like to stick around endpoint logs and whatnot, but when I came across this, uh, it's it's a like the oldest battle of cybersecurity, right? <laughs> like how like from the beginning, the very beginning of computer acts and attacks, you know, from the days of you like everyone in the office shared one terminal and the password was admin admin, so no one had any idea what anyone else was doing. Uh, it, if you looked at the audit trail, because everyone was using the same thing. Um, but, you know, weak passwords in an organization is always a battle that people have faced. But what, what Spec Ops found, or I should say Spec Ops software found, was that 83% of the, um, and sorry, they were looking at 3 billion unique compromised passwords and they analyze 800 million breached passwords. So they're looking at a large set of data and they found that 83% of these passwords satisfy the password length and complexity requirements of regulatory password standards. And that 88% of these passwords or 88% of the passwords used to attack RDP ports were less than 12 characters or less. So we see a large, um, a large portion of these passwords met the standards that are being preached by things like NIST, PCI, HITRA, you know, HIPAA, um, all these things that are saying, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do. It just goes to show that at times, that might not be the right answer. Now, granted, the complexity of it um, is, isn't the, or your password not meet or meeting the comp uh, wow <laughs> it's <a> Monday <laughs> your password meeting the complexity and length requirement doesn't always mean it's a good password especially if you do things like create a password based off of the month of the year um you know, or the seasons. If you have to pet, you know, if you have to change your password every three months, you know, winter 2023 exclamation point is not a good password. Yes, it has um, a word. Yes, it has numbers and special characters. But at the same time, 
a lot of people are doing. Um, so like that standard of just having or meeting the requirements versus thinking of a good, good password, which I believe nowadays the, the term passphrase has been thrown around that sitting around there and saying that you don't want to just create a password. You want a phrase that you can easily remember, but you make it complex by throwing in special characters, numbers, capital letters, lowercase letters, and so um, But that's not really the standard. That is a good um, thing to think about. Um, but it's not really the NIST standard, right? Um, then, you know, they looked at uh, the most common base term for all these um, all these dumb passwords, all these passwords that showed up in the breach. And the most common base terms are basically the problem. <laughs> like, it going back to the stories that have been told, like, the most common base term, number one was password. Number two, admin. Number four was password with an at sign and a zero instead of an A and an O. Um, number seven was password with just that. So it's just like, it looks like people continue to meet the standards, the length and complexity, but still using a portion, um, if not all of their password, as something that is already known to be, um, I guess, compromised, really. I guess for the lack of a better term, having a password as password probably means you're going to get compromised. Um, ironically, too, the homeless PA password base is actually number six and i was didn't i didn't even think about what that why that was significant but the report sh shows that this was a password base term found in the 2016 myspace leak so that tells us that people have um like we've been making i mean not only have we been making the same mistakes from the beginning of computers but even after big breaches like the MySpace leak, that we're still doing the same thing. And what that allows adversaries to do is use old terms that, you know, so I guess comparing to an IOC, we know like a hash, a file name, or a, a, an IP, or a domain name, they might be switched quickly through an attack. But from a password perspective, we're using the we're making the same mistakes over and over, giving these password based terms more longevity to say, hey, you know, basically compromising. It's just this really long, you know, we're using making the same mistakes over and over. Uh, and, a, and one of the use case examples they used was NVIDIA, um, the GPU man manufacturer. So there was a breach of thousands of employee passwords and a lot or four of the base words that were leaked um, or most of the hazards contained a variation of NVIDIA in it. So once again, looking at, hey, where do I work? Maybe including my employee's name is not a good idea um, because that might be easily guessed. And then QWERTY, Q-W-E-R-T-Y, showed up on the NVIDIA password leak as well as a variation in the um, the other base, uh, common base term. So it's just, they're just really, really highlighting um, the idea that we need to 
think of passwords in a different way. We need to come up with a more um, secure way to do it. These standards might not be, um, you know, might not be working um, while it is meeting some standard that has been set, um, especially when looking for how long does it take to crack a password or brute force a password, you know, the longer the characters or the more characters, the more um, special characters and, you know, you name it, it's going to take a GPU longer to crack that. But if they have, if the adversaries have a password list of breached passwords already, they might not need to sit there and take forever with a GPU trying to, you know, just hack away. They have all these breached passwords that they could start saying, well, you know what? This is a common one. Um, let's try this. Um, but also something that, um, and I guess the last thing I should say is ironically, they said football or soccer to us Americans um, is the universal language. And they, they actually took <laughs> the World Cup legend rankings. They took all these uh, football or soccer players, um, their names, and ranked them as the most common. Um, so I think it might upset some people um, because Pele was 11, Messi was 14, Ronaldo was at 18. Now, I don't recognize a lot of these names uh, because I'm not a big soccer fan. I don't, well, I shouldn't say I'm not a fan, but I just don't follow it. But those are the names that stick out, and they are pretty low. Now, now from the information side, um, from a blue teamer, I won't say threat hunter, um, because this is more of a blue team perspective. Um, how can you use this information to protect your environment? Well, if it is your job to maintain passwords, if you're, if it's your job to um, administer new passwords, new accounts, and so on. Um, you can use the lists that we that currently exist out there that have been created by adversaries that have been created by legitimate organizations and maybe inform your people now i wouldn't say go through and um you know compare their passwords i mean you could do that i don't know if that you know crosses the line of blue team to red team or whatever the case may be you know if you're, you're trying to find out use legitimate users passwords because that kind of gets into the whole are you spying on me kind of deal um but what you can do is use these password lists um compare the maybe compare the hashes to your users um their passwords and then you know just inform the people say listen like here's the standards that are, here's what the standards say but here's these reports here's all these breached passwords you know, it may or may not be working fully, um, but informing people about it and letting them know that just to, you know, to up their game when it comes to passwords might, uh, it might need to be done. I know that was long-winded, um, but I know we like to talk about how we use the things that the threat actors are using um, to help us and aid us. All right, so what were your yeah. thoughts, Paul? Yeah, so it's, you know, I, I think reports like this are always interesting. Um, I think the biggest thing like, that you pointed out, too, was the common base terms. Because, you know, if you look at, like, password or the variations of password, it's eight characters. And a lot of standards, you know, kind of push things to 12-character lengths. 
Well, if people keep a base that's commonly used, a lot of the cracking for password tools, you can basically use that base and then just really just breaking a four character password with some shifts, right? Because you can move password through, you know, different positions within that 12 character string. And that's where breaking passwords with those common bases becomes easy from a brute forcing perspective, right? Because you're really only guessing a few characters and then just kind of sorting, you know, changing the order a little bit with the base term. Um, so that's a, that's a big thing there, but something when you talked about, um, like auditing people's passwords, one of the solutions I've always, I was in the process of standing up one, um, once we got the appropriate approval, but I thought it was a really good solution. And that was, you know, a lot of the, and they, when they mentioned RDP as an example, and everyone's trying to break into whatever remote services are hanging off the edge. Um, but that also means that if someone were able to acquire passwords, like for instance, if they get a phishing that takes them to, or someone gets phished that takes them to a credential harvesting site where they put in their credentials, like that adversary didn't gain anything but credentials and they got to figure out how to use them. So kind of standing up a honeypot type solution where all the solution is, is this looks like a internal website for your company. They can go to it. They can put in a username. They can put in a password. Once that gets put in, the system on the back end will actually just try to do an authentication with whatever username and password is provided. Um, and if it can successfully authenticate, you I mean, technically you don't really know the password. It's all kind of behind the scenes. Then you know that password has escaped in some way, and you know it can be an automatic process almost to roll the password. You know, there's approaches like this that I think are uh, kind of simple and elegant in some ways because it's, it's, you know, it's hard to break bad habits for users um, without kind of like holding their hand in the process. And unfortunately we don't help users create passwords. Right. Uh, but that's kind of my take as far as like why this is important and why it makes it simple and some interesting solutions I've thought up of trying to implement, um, that I think would help with some of this and won't solve it obviously, but, uh, but yeah, that was kind of my take. It's cool. Read. I know, I think back in the day you brought up or you introduced me to a paper or a solution that someone came up with that was based off of length and how often you have to change it, which I thought was cool that yeah. like, if you wanted like a four or if, you, or if you wanted a really weak password, you could have it, but you yeah, have to change it to like every it. day. But if you had like yeah. a really super, um, you know, super complex one, Maybe you wouldn't have to change it for like a year or two. Um, but, you know, I arrived at, I think that's a pretty neat or um, plan. I don't know how, what that would look like in an organization, but still. Well, it's cool because it puts, you know, the one of the banes of security is convenience, right? And when you make it less convenient to be insecure, where people are constantly having to change their passwords based on like there's some sort of complexity or whatever obviously they're going to be like, well, I don't want to change my password every hour because it's that week or every day or every week. They're like, wait, I can use the same password for six months if I make it this, you know, with the exception that somehow their password shows up as being compromised or some way, or, you know, they get fished or whatever it is that just kind of forces the role. I mean, users will be more likely and willing to do things like that. Um, so yeah, it was, I remember what you're talking about. That was a, a really cool approach. Cool, cool, yeah. So this was really neat. Uh, I know it really wasn't threat hunting, but it was. Sometimes you stumble across these reports, and you're like, "Yeah, it seems like the same old problem." But it looks like someone took a different approach to looking at it. Um, mm -hmm. But enough of that. Let's get into your next 
article? Yeah, so I grabbed a Checkpoint article. Uh, it's called Tunnel Warfare, Exposing DNS Tunneling Campaigns Using Generative Models. And specifically, they're looking at the coin loader for the case study. And this is more than an informative article because it's talking about DNS tunneling in general, but also talking about kind of using like ML models to help detect it. And I feel like with machine learning models and things like that, this is kind of where a lot of their strength comes into play. Because uh, this is kind of an a example of statistical analysis. So, you know, if people aren't familiar with looking at DNS logging, one, it's very verbose. There's, there's, you know, pretty much every connection that happens on the internet, unless it's a direct IP connection, you're going to have a DNS log for it, uh, assuming that, you know, you're, you're collecting all those. And so there could be a lot of data in general. Um, so it gives you also a good idea of how, where people are going uh, when it comes to the internet. Um, but when it comes to DNS telling, you know, as an example, uh, it's if once you see it, you know it's happening when you when you understand kind of the mechanisms. And with DNS tunneling, what they're basically doing is they're using part of the subdomain area of the DNS request to hold and contain the data. And it can be um, encoded, it can be encrypted. You know, there's different ways it can be displayed, or it can even be in plain text, and then it's really obvious. Um, but what this kind of causes is is two things. One you can ship data um, using the subdomain, and it's always going to end up at whatever it's wherever it's supposed to land because it's going to go to the, the actual domain, whoever owns that, um, as far as data. And because you're constantly shifting the subdomain because of um, your interactions, it also avoids DNS caching, which is an optimization that happens with DNS, so that your DNS won't go ass to get all that uh, address resolved because they've resolved it and they're holding on to it based on a time to live um, typically. So that it basically says, oh, you, I don't have to re-ask this question. I know the answer already um, for your internal servers. And DNS tunneling is really effective because, because you're using basically your own infrastructure and the internet's infrastructure for DNS, you can pipe uh, kind of uh, C2 or malicious connections um, around a lot of infrastructure and get past a lot of defenses because DNS typically can is open enough. Um, the, the one disadvantage, which is why I think it's easy to identify, is you can't pass a lot of data uh, because you're kind of limited to the payload size or the, the size of a DNS request. Um, so there's going to be a lot of them. And that's what I mean. It's easy to identify when you start seeing a ton of subdomains. So like everything before, like, you know, you have your domain, say, google.com, It'd be the dot before the Google and whatever is the subdomain. And that this is constantly changing and happening quite a bit in a short period of time. Uh, so that that's very telling. And it usually doesn't repeat either. Uh, so obviously machine learning, I think, would do fantastic in this. Um, and I, I think it's kind of ironic because obviously if you see what I describe with your human eyes, you'd be like, oh, that looks like DNS tunneling. So obviously machine will do it really well. The only difference is uh, we don't want to sit there and stare at log streaming across the screen with our bare eyes until they bleed. Um, this is where a machine can basically perform the same thing a human can um, and identify these types of things. And that's kind of what they proved out. Uh, so it's kind of a really insightful thing, kind of brings you DNS tunneling to, you know, fr front of mind a little bit. Talks about their approach as far as how they kind of break it down and what they look at. Um, I'm sure to be completely 
honest, there's probably multiple models that can solve the same problem when it comes to machine learning. So the biggest takeaway here is if this is a way you want to solve it, is which one is the least resource intensive? Um, just because that's one of the disadvantages of machine learning is I think you can really solve small pinpoint problems very well, but the amount of overhead and machine processing potentially, or you know, the process in general of incorporating that can be very taxing. So if you were to deploy a lot of ML models across different um, target sets for different reasons, that's where I think it gets uh, a little um, heavy on the top side. But it's an interesting article to check out if you're not familiar with DNS tunneling. They kind of show you know some aspects of it. They also talk through their model. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's more of a kind of high level kind of what to look for. It still exists. It's still going on. Why it's important, um, and kind of some takeaways if you're not a, you know not well versed in DNS tunneling. It's a great article to check out. Yeah. So this one kind of hurt my brain a lot, especially when it comes to like machine learning and you know that point in view because i know that's like your bread and butter um but i would you know looking through it and thinking about like how how you can approach this as a uh as a threat hunting like you said i think you hit it right though that looking at all the domains that they listed looking at the domains the output of the tool that they used it's first of all it appears completely not completely random but it sticks out Right, you have a uh, DNS query that is nonsensical. Um, it's just a bunch of different letters thrown together. Um, and as you <laughs> as you look at it even further, you see that what's appended to the very front, um, you can imagine. I'm guessing this is where they're you know storing their data. But like, if you look at DNS queries, you may be able to figure out right away which ones are malicious or not. Um, and then further on in the article, they mentioned um, one of the tools they were using, um, or sorry, uh, as the tool progressed, it reached out to different domains um, that if you look at it, it was R-Q-M-E-T-R-I-X, and then there's A.info, then B.info, C.info. So it, not only can you find it, um, but if you focus on that and look at the incremental behavior of it, you may be able to figure out how long this has been happening in your environment or something similar to, um, you know, compared to the processes, the process length, how long it's been running. And then kind of gives you the idea of maybe can we figure out how much, um, how much data has actually been uh, exfiltrated. But here's a good article. Um, like I said, the, the machine learning part uh, always blows my mind, um, but I'm glad you like it. Yeah, so you brought up a good point that I forgot to mention. I and mean, when you mentioned the like incremental type patterns, because DNS typically is over UDP, you know, you kind of have to have that persistent communication. Otherwise, the connection just kind of gets dropped. So that is also a common aspect of DNS tunneling where even if, if there's a tool utilizing DNS tunneling for an active connection to have that interaction kind of capability, not just sending data or, you know, chunking data out for exfil type purposes, you will see kind of that behavior where it's just a constant. That's why it generates so much data too, not just because 
you have to send a lot of requests to incorporate the data you want to send back and forth, but just keeping that heartbeat alive so that connection is actually persistent. Um, so that's a, it's a good point that you brought up. But yeah, that's all I got on that. So what do you have next? Next up is an article by someone uh, addressing another age-old problem. Apparently, these just came out this week. Uh, we're just revisiting problems that have existed in cybersecurity forever. But this one is talking about the public sector and cybersecurity. And it's titled, Why State and Local Governments Are at Risk. Well, um, reading through it, and it talks a lot about what we already know. Local and state governments are, or I mean, really government work in general, is always underfunded. The red tape to get anything new in the environment is absurd. I mean, you, you and I both were in the military, and we saw this from, uh, you know, the co contractors that were working around us, um, the struggles to adopt new technology. And then not only once the uh, technology is adopted, then you have to train people up on it, and then you have to you know write all these um, you know documents, documentation to say this is what we're doing. And then, and not only does that take time if you're a team, but normally you're in local and state government, you're throwing this on a single person as their security team. Now we so we have like once again the perfect storm of antiquated technology that is not only is it old it's unpatched it's not supported anymore so we're relying on these legacy technologies run and trying to be maintained by a single person who doesn't have budget to update anything really um and probably is getting underpaid as well um, from a cybersecurity perspective, and which could hit the motivation, right? So you've, if you have an unmotivated employee that is facing all these problems, um, once again, you're creating a, an environment that's just saying, hey, we're probably going to get it. Now, not an add-on to that, but if you think about the data that local and state governments hold, it makes them even more of a target. So not only do the adversaries know that government is struggling to keep up with the times, but they also know that these organizations have everything they need to become another person. They have um, license numbers, license plate numbers, car VINs, um, if you think about their addresses, their social security number, things like this, that adversaries can gather and sell for a lot of money. I mean, if you have all this, <laughs> I mean, just think about that problem, right? You have this really, really attractive data set and you're protecting it with a security camera that is not on all of them. I mean, I know that's probably an exaggeration, but that's kind of what it seems like. So then not only are we creating a very juicy target for the adversary, but then they're actually acting on it and it's impacting that low, that whoever's effective, you know, or however that um, 
victim is in charge of, you know, protecting. But whether it be, let me use examples like Colonial Pipeline, JBS Foods, the Dallas's 911 computer system, water systems, you, you name it. Like these are major things that the citizens that live there are reliant on and could cause major issues for day-to-day -day activities of the businesses, of the people that live there. So it's like a, it's a high risk because of the data that exists. It's a high impact because if you ransomware someone, it may impact an entire community, but it almost seems like um, they're the least protected organizations. Um, and then they talk about the other uh, attacks that they face, like phishing, business email compromise. Going back to phishing, I mean, I think you said it best is that it's not if, it's when, because someone could craft a beautiful phishing campaign and then catch you on a Friday at five whenever you just got pulled into a meeting and you want to be done. So you just click on it, right? Like if it looks good enough for you, um, there's, you know, it's always a win. But then you think about business, business email compromise, which is the, I think this is more lucrative than all ransomware combined, um, simply because someone reaches out and says, Hey, can you do this? Can you wire me this? Or I'm the CEO, you know, we need, I approve this. We need this money sent here, blah, blah. Um, but I think, and I could be wrong. Um, but I think that, I think that can be covered by insurance. Maybe. Um, so it's not as reported as ransomware because ransomware, you know, ransomware is ransomware. You, you can't operate with it. Um, if you lose, if you wire $15,000 somewhere else, um, you say, yeah, we got scammed, but you may not have to report it. Um, but then they go on to list on some ideas of how can these organizations better prepare themselves, even on a budget. So they talked about creating a security policy, um, you know, adopt something, have something in writing that says, hey, this is our goal and this is what this is our perspective from an organizational standpoint. We want all IT teams, even if it is just one guy or one girl that is responsible for it. You know, this is what this is what we've defined um, implementing patched management schedule. Something that is uh, commonly missed is timely patching. And once again, if you think about a single person shop, that is a big lift because they have to not only um, patch or they have to know everything that exists in the organization, then they have to go through and patch it accordingly and make sure that it doesn't break, make sure that it's still working and then whoever needs it can access it. Um, and then, you know, cybersecurity training programs, October's coming up, it's that month. Um, but still getting people to think about cybersecurity, uh, even even if it is an afterthought, right? That's still better than no thought at all. But once again, a good article explaining or detailing a problem that exists that has existed uh, for a while now. Um, but yeah, so what were your thoughts? Yeah, so, you know, this is kind of interesting to me because... I look at the problem that a lot of the public sector governments, local government, state government, you know, kind of the smaller areas, um, they 
there's not a lot of change, right? And that's why they have a lot of older things or things aren't necessarily up to date or there's like new latest and greatest technologies, things like that, because they don't really have to compete with anybody, right? When you look at a lot of big business and things like that, you know, they're constantly competing. Revenue is kind of, they, they have to generate their, their own revenue, uh, essentially. So there is a burden to be good enough to not have the problems that some of the government areas are being faced with. But from a, like a security practitioner, you know, and I'm not always really big on profiling is adversaries are going to go after, you know, they called out in here pretty much outdated technologies, um, or limited resources. And I think that it still exists in many environments. Um, you think about things that don't change or old technologies, you look at like operational environments like SCADA um, and an OT, uh, those kind of could be subject to the same thing. The only difference is they're not exposed the same way, right? Usually when you have that operational environment, it's kind of like walled off from a lot of things and even get there, you have to get through another environment that has more of the latest, the greatest up-to-date stuff, cool new tools, whatever. So you kind of have that buffer in between in a lot of ways. And government's kind of like if you were to take that old SCADA network that's more IT driven, so easily understood and doesn't have that buffer. Uh, you know, they run into the, you know, the same type of exposure. So you can see how a company handles those types of assets differently. Now, the other thing that it made me think about as well is uh, it's really good to understand where you have old technology in your environment. It's not the technology that needs to be mostly focused on it's what processes internally in the business is that technology enabling or the purpose of why you have these older systems this older software whatever it is um because adversaries clearly go after them but i've seen plenty of pen tests where that's where they got their win you know everyone's doing all the right things with all the commonly used processes the things that naturally get updated because they kind of have to to stay compatible with other things they utilize in the environment stuff that really integrates with multiple things usually is more up to date. And then you'll have some process where like, oh yeah, we use this for some mundane task. It's been there forever. It, it works. So we don't touch it, you know, that kind of thing. And then the red team was like, oh yeah, well, because you have it set up with this type of service account, we're able to get in with this kind of access and then go from there. Um, and so I, I feel like everyone's kind of subject to that. So from a kind of a threat hunter's perspective, be able to profile the business processes that are tied to uh, older technology or older software can sometimes give you good uh, hypothesis for if an attacker were to take advantage of this process or system, um, this is what kind of the normal baseline looks like and it's you know what it's typically supposed to do and how can I identify how this could be leveraged differently or if it did, how far can things get, um, what would that look like uh, they can kind of create some really good, like, you know, institutional specific hunts uh, just based on that profiling activity alone. But those are always really good points to focus on. And that's kind of what this called out to me is, you know, hey, they suffer from this because that's how they have to operate. But everyone's kind of subject to this to some scale and, and you know, kind of learn from this example. Yeah, those are all very good points. Yeah. So how are you going to wrap this one up? Nothing too exciting, but it's something that I always like to call out because of how a lot of threat actors work. 
um, and especially ransomware groups. So this one um, is an article from Security Affairs, and it's titled LockBit3 Leaked Code Usage. Um, so basically the LockBit3.0 ransomware builder um, was used by multiple threat actors. Uh, and so this is always interesting because I think, I don't want to say ransomware operators are like the laziest of the adversaries, but there's a lot of sharing of TTPs and people just doing what works because I say they're lazy because their goal is really to just get in and get out. Um, so there's not a lot of work or effort into like, how do I stay hidden for long periods of time? Um, and so with this, you know, the source code for the builder for LockBit 3.0 being leaked, I could just see a bunch of people grabbing it up. Um, it's kind of has the same agenda and trying to use it. And that's kind of what they saw. They saw um, how this um, was picked up and it looks like people didn't go to much effort to change a lot of the things I guess you can tweak. Um, so there's a lot of default-ish payloads that kind of got generated um, for this. But it's kind of one of those things to call out like, hey, you know, one thing this usually spells out is if some source code for a ransomware that is effective um, gets leaked out, you start to see a little more ransomware activity because uh, um, they kind of lower the bar as far as what it takes to try to do ransomware operations or, you know, use use different tooling that ransomware um, needs. Uh, but they also showed some examples, I thought, in the screenshots, which are interesting, where they kind of showed some of the base activity um, as far as, you know, looking for... RDP sessions, um, what they're using, the use of Vimicats, like a lot of the kind of the lower brow security tools. Um, and and so, you know, they kind of have some techniques to get called out. Nothing that's super technical, but kind of an idea of a process or workflow. But like I, like I said, uh, I, I, I know I'm insulting a lot of probably very capable people, but ransomware authors or ransomware operators are fairly lazy. I feel like they have the people that kind of build the process and then they kind of hand it off to the the, the busy workers and they just kind of just implement. And so, you know, I feel like you see a lot of this and this is kind of a, not surprising, but it might create an uptick um, when things like this happen. Are you scoffing at work smarter, <laughs> not harder? <laughs> I'm just... I, I guess being in cybersecurity, you kind of, you might have the adversaries you, you just don't like, right? Like you're like, you're, it's like us versus them, right? But it's, but you kind of have that mutual respect. Like when you see like a really well-built attack, you're like, wow, you know, it's something like, that's really cool. Like the, they're able to pull that off. Like you, you kind of have that or, you know, even in attackers, I remember um, now I'm really going to pull up some random story uh, to end it on. But I remember at a cyber shield, uh, where the first ones we went to, we were supposed to defend the SCADA network, and we couldn't get on with any kind of privileges to do anything on this, basically, Linux instance. So we created our own log file by using watch commands and netstat and looking for, basically, new connections coming in and had it pipe it to a, a file, and then we were, like, watching that file and all this kind of stuff. And because it was a very innov in a, uh, a really innovative approach, uh the our lab or our our section kind of got shut down because all the red teamers saw us doing this and we're like oh that's really cool so they all wanted to see what we're doing and they all logged into our instance at the same time to view us work through this problem that it brought down our stuff 
And so, like I said, you know, there's a lot of respect when it comes to some really cool offensive capabilities, but I guess they really thought the defensive capabilities we did, it was kind of like the same mutual respect back. Like, wow, that's really cool. Um, so, so yeah, when I think of the ransomware operators, I just, they're in it for the money, right? They're not in it for the glory. And, uh, there isn't, uh, a lot of building of net new skill sets uh, at the speed you see a lot of more advanced adversaries that's all so you say they grind your gears <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> not saying I, mean, I really want to work harder because i have to work against better people um i just when it's the same thing rinse and repeat it kind of gets old you know so what i'm hearing is you are comparing ransomware as the was it the the three chord songs versus all other threat actors that is Freddie Mercury's, um, oh man, the song. Yeah, like ransomware is the power cord, right? You gotcha. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Ransomware is not true art. It works, but it's just like, okay. So I, I find it interesting that you say that because I do love a really good Intel report that talks about, well, of course, I feel for the victim. Don't get me right. Wrong. I'm excited. And you don't want to when, be the victim, but yeah. When you read something that brings up new TTPs and new behaviors, um, and using a new tool that you're, you've never seen, you know, it, it is exciting. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, with the ransomware attacks, uh, they are getting better. They continue to decrease the dwell time in people's environment, which is frightening. So it, I, I kind of thought of it as... Um, I mean, for the lack of a better term, the basic attack. Whereas if we could master how to detect or hunt for and protect against ransomware attacks, then we'd be cutting off, I guess, like the low-hanging fruit. Yeah, I, I just hate that. I feel like ransomware is like a scripted attack that continues to work, which means defense is not getting better or improving. Right. Like if, if I can script an attack, basically, like what it feels like within a 24 hour period, I can basically go from here to here. There's just a lot of things that we as a whole are not mature enough for, um, based on how we monitor, how we harden, um, how we prioritize it, I think it just speaks a lot to that. Like, I don't want to give the adversary too much credit because it's ransomware authors and that's, I guess, a bias. But, uh, but yeah, so that's kind of how like I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to see something good now. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I, I do feel that in the same way, if we could protect and hunt and detect for ransomware attacks that they're happening so often that my fear is that complacency would kick in that. They yeah. might hang up, like they might hang it up and say, listen, we hit this, we checked all these boxes. Ransomware is not, not a thing of the past, but if it happens, we could, you know, we know what to expect, right? Um, and if you get complacent there and you don't look for there's, if you don't continue researching, if you don't continue to keep your head on a swivel, you might just get comfortable you might be really, really good at pre preventing ransomware, but what happens when that adversary says, you know what, we're going to go more um, espionage now. We're not going to focus on ransomware. We're going we're gonna to try and see what we can steal from you. Well, it's, then, it's, it's, 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, and then then you might miss those new things, right? You might just be focused. Um, yeah, you might find the discovery because looking at all these reports um, for the discovery phase seems like they use the same tools over and over. Um, but at the same time, if you find the discovery phase, you don't know exactly or right away the answer of what they're after. No, but I digress. Go ahead. Yeah. The one thing that just kind of cracks me up is entering into security. One of the biggest focuses was how do you how do you decrease dwell time? You know, we're like, man, these actors have been in a network for six months to a year, and we want that we need to get them out sooner. And now it's like the opposite. We're like, how do we increase dwell time so we have a chance to detect them? You know, <laughs> it's like kind of a completely different problem to try to solve. Obviously, both kind of resort towards making them work harder. Um, but, but yeah, so it's just interesting. Now that so, was, oh, sorry. No, last mention. If the source code leaked and you can get a hands on that, study it. Look at the bit. Don't just look at the, the, the default configuration. Don't look at just the IOCs that happen. And whenever you use it, look at the behaviors. Once again, I know we mentioned it earlier, but using the tools that the threat actors have at their disposal, use them to see, to research and study, to see what they look like in your environment. Of course, I'm not saying go ransomware your environment. Please don't do that. Cyborg security is not responsible if you do ransomware your <laughs> environment. Um, but if you get a hold of this and you run it in a lab environment, and you see what the traffic looks like, and you see what events occur whenever you use it, then that gives you the leverage. That's how you could get really good at protecting against lock. Um, yep. But yeah, sorry. Very Last point. mention. I'm done. Yeah, so just one little quick mention, too, before we close out. So, you know, uh, those that have been uh, join, joining up for our live podcast, uh, we have another one coming up. Uh, it's the 21st of September from 7 to 8.30 p.m., uh, Eastern Standard Time. And, you know, these are fun because we try to do a theme drink. We try to make it social. They're a little bit longer. Uh, we get the involvement with um, people listening through Discord. So, you know, we get comments. We try to converse back and forth. Uh, we usually have some more people on the podcast as well for for more open discussions. Uh, so usually a really good time. Uh, we enjoy it, and it seems like there's at least a few people that enjoy it on a regular basis as well. So that's awesome. So, you know, if you can make it, try to make it, check it out. Um, and yeah, so with that, thanks everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of August 28th, 2023. Thanks for joining everyone and happy hunting. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.